We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Blue Wire. Welcome back, everyone. This is the Big Blue Banter New York Giants podcast. I'm Dan Schneier, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Nick Pilato. Before we dive into our takeaways from the All-22 Coaches tape, I just wanted to wish all of our listeners a happy Thanksgiving. We really appreciate your recent support, the ratings on iTunes, the reviews you leave. I literally read every one of them. It means a lot to me. This Thanksgiving, I'm very thankful for the Big Blue Banter podcast. And those of you who make it possible, including my co-host, Nick. So anyway, both Nick and I, we've now had time to digest, analyze, break down the All-22 Coaches film. We wish that we could come to you like we did last year in the second half of 2018 when they started to play winning football, the New York Giants. And there were good things to talk about. Players progression. Unfortunately, that's not the case. Having said that, there were some players we really like what we saw from in this game. We're going to touch on that. We're going to touch on a lot of concepts about the New York Giants including the future Dave Gettleman. Pat Shermer, this all ties in to another loss in a game coming out of their bye week where, quite frankly, they weren't as prepared. So, Nick, how are you doing today? I'm doing lovely, man. Is everyone ready for Turkey Carcass Day? It's coming up, guys. It's coming up. I got big things planned for ter- for my turkey day. I'm making my famous homemade guac, first of all. It's fucking awesome. Guac uh, for turkey all- day? Hmm. Yep. Yeah, I know. We, we do things a little different. We got a lot of interesting appetizers. It's like uh, we got we make like meatballs, chicken, color, all sorts of things go on in our Thanksgiving in addition to the normal stuff. But um, at the same time, I'm also going to be helping with the turkey this year because I've learned some tips uh, that I need to bring to my aunt, who unfortunately hasn't been the greatest cooker of the turkey over the years. Uh, very dry at times. Needs a lot of gravy. We're going to hope to change that this year. But Nick, there's Giants football to talk about, like I said, coming out of the bye week. Another loss in a game where I don't want to say they could have won it like some of the others, even though they obviously could have. They, they blew some ridiculously fruitful opportunities in the first half um, and then in the second half again. 
But at the same time, you know, this was a game where they looked to me to be outcoached. I don't know if that's that was the same way to you, but it really just starts for me. Uh, first quarter, 14-25 in the first quarter for those of you following along on Game Pass. And it's right after the first play of the game where the Giants have this advantageous field position. And as you guys will notice over the course of this podcast, I'm going to be talking about a lot of times where the Giants were in a really good field position after turnovers or kickoffs or punts and where they didn't take advantage of them to the tune of zero. Miss field goal, miss field goal there. Uh, you know, at disadvantageous run at that disadvantageous box. But this one comes after the bootleg on the first play. And they're at the Chicago 47, starting to roll a little bit. And they run at a seven-man box with an eight defender coming in on a corner blitz. Uh, I want to hear your take on this, Nick, because for, for me, a less educated football analyst than you, I'm thinking even if this uh, even if this corner who comes free is blocked, which is, uh, by the way, at fault of the Giants, I believe, and Hal Hunter and their entire run blocking and run execution. But even so, there's no hole. 58's right in the middle waiting for Barkley. And if you look at this look pre-snap, and this is what I keep coming back to, to me, it looks like the Giants have no chance no matter who's who's playing running back. What do you see on this play? I mean, this is the second play of the game after a positive play. They kick the ball out of bounds. So the Giants have all this little momentum so early on on the road. Momentum so important in this game. 21 personnel, man. And the Bears, they knew exactly what was coming on this play. There were no wide receivers to the boundary. So number 23, Fuller, is down by the line of scrimmage when there are two receivers to that field side. And at the snap, Fuller backs off, and then Eddie Jackson blitzes from that field side, which left Sterling Shepard wide open with no Chicago defenders around him. Dude, the Bears knew it was going to be a run, and they heavily committed to hit Barkley in the backfield and force the loss of five. I mean, it's so predictable that the Bears full out committed to look, and they left receivers wide open with the safety 20 yards back in one corner versus two receivers on that side. That receiver was the hot receiver, Sterling Shepard. If it were to be a pass, it would have been a huge play, but the Bears didn't even fret that whatsoever it's because the Giants are so predictable. They knew it was going to be a run. And what's the net gain? A loss of five. I mean, it, awesome. it's it's absolutely crazy. It's crazy because after you lose that five, you put yourself in the second and 15 type situation. That's really hard to come back from. This is so consistent with how they with what they've been in this entire season. And like you said, there's been enough tape that they know that after a big turnover, as we'll see twice later in the game or at the beginning of the game and maybe after a kickoff, maybe after a kickoff goes out of bounds or they get a punt return, the Giants are running the ball and the Giants are trying to establish the run, quote unquote, establish the run. I don't you know, you've heard Pat Turner in the past say, we got number 26, we got to get him the ball. And then he gets gets all crazy when people get on for not getting him the ball. But it's really there has to be better ways for this specific 2019 Giants team with the personnel they have to create yardage on first down and get their quarterback out of second and longs and get their quarterback out of third and longs. Because with the exception of one third down, the Giants were in third and seven or plus the entire game, which is absurd to think about. But, Nick, I want to flip into something positive and get your take on this. And you can tell me if this is just happening for a lot of rookies you've watched or it's a little a little just a notch plus uh, in Daniel Jones' belt. And that's 10:43 in the first quarter for those of you following along. Giants faced with a third and six at 10:43. Daniel Jones notices the corner blitz. Corner has responsibility. Lined over Cody Latimer. Immediately when he sees that, uh, adjusts his play, snaps his head to the left, and puts the ball on Latimer for a seven-yard gain to move the sticks. What do you make of this play, Nick? 
I mean, it's the only first down that the Giants got on a third down. But it was, like you said, third and six, empty set, Ohio concept to the boundary. That's the two-receiver side. Number 24, Buster's screen is covered down on Cody Latimer, and he blitzes to that boundary side where there are three rushers for two blockers. Jones, and this is good, good development on Jones, good play on Jones. He finds that hot receiver and gets rid of the ball and hits Latimer for a first after an excellent inside fake by Latimer. And that was a really important part of the play as well. So you got to give credit to Latimer because Roquan Smith was tasked to sprint from the middle of field to get to Latimer. So that inside fake at the top of his stem just froze Smith just enough to allow Jones to hit him and that Fake by Latimer also helped create that space because it did free Smith. So it was a really nice route, and it could have been a better pass by Jones. But the fact that Latimer did that inside fake and Roquan Smith had to cover all of that ground. And I remember, I don't know if a lot of you guys were into the draft, but Roquan Smith out of Georgia, one of the more athletic linebackers in the nation. Very, very fast, so he can cover that ground. So that inside move really froze him there. And Jones kind of put it a little bit inside, but it didn't matter. So they ended up getting the first down on that specific play. And that's the only time we saw that uh, in this game. Yeah, and you know, you bring up a good point, Nick, because it wasn't a perfect throw. And I think overall for me, Nick, and I want to hear your take on this now before I go any further, I do think this was probably Jones's worst game from a ball placement standpoint overall. What would you make of that statement? Yeah, the only one that really like jumps out at you is obviously the fourth and 18 later on in the game with the touchdown, stepping up in the pocket, hitting Tate deep. I mean, that was a hot through it so we could high point the ball. That was an excellent throw. But there were a couple of throws where you, you were kind of scratching your head. You were like, oh, man, that could have been placed a little bit more on the upfield shoulder. He could have threw him open a little bit better. But again, the pocket was really constricted in this game. It wasn't as many sacks as there has been in other games, but I would have to agree with you, and you kind of – I don't want to say I'm worried whatsoever about Daniel Jones and his ball placement because he's shown it consistently throughout this season, but it was probably his worst game from that standpoint. Yeah, and again, to me, that's really not uh, a negative to me because I, I, you guys have heard me on the record. One thing that's really surprised me in a really good way about Daniel Jones has been his ball placement overall this year, especially when you compare it to the guys like, you know, Dwayne Haskins, either the, the young Allens playing in Carolina and Denver, Mason Rudolph, some of those guys, you know, Kyler Murray, even who I would say is a little bit obviously ahead of him in that regard. And that's tough because I think he's going to be a, a future star in this league. So it's hard for me to compare him to him. But I mean, you look at some of these guys, even last year's class, Rosen, Mayfield, Darnold, um, it's there for Jones. Now, a couple other factors I think should be noted. First of all, this was a Bears defense that the Giants really struggled with last year. I mentioned this on the Reaction Podcast. They run a good system. They do a lot of pre-snap. They do a lot of changes post-snap in their coverages and roll a lot of coverages in ways that kind of can confuse the quarterback. I don't think Jones really got fooled by that, but I think part of it, part of his struggles in this game were the fact that they were really constantly in third and long in this game. It was early. It was early. Often, I believe there was actually two plays where they weren't third and seven or shorter. But I mean, otherwise, they were in these these spots where it's just tough to, you know, move the ball. But I want to fast forward here, Nick, to 644 in the first quarter. This is when the Giants on the defensive side of the ball and something uh, intrigued me and, and caught my attention. And that was, first of all, I don't know why the ball was spotting here on the 41 and not the 39. Did you notice this on the first play? The Bears threw a little like dump screen to Cohen that went two yards backwards and was ruled at the 39, and then they got called for a penalty that the Giants declined and took second down, and then the ball was spotted all of a sudden at the 41. Did you notice this by any chance? Uh, yeah, it, great. I mean, I 
saw that and I thought it was weird and I kind of really? probably didn't think about it enough because now I'm like, yeah, wait a second. It's crazy. And then I think about the play with Trubisky and I put that on Twitter oh, as well. Yeah, when he that was scrambled. a disaster. Like I said that live though. Like I was watching that. But how about this, Nick? Because we talked about it in the first pod. How about this? Because we didn't mention this. I think that's a coaching error. The more I thought about it, that's on Pat Shermer. Yeah, like, definitely. Yeah. Sure, you don't challenge the pass interferences, even though he's done it seven times and lost all seven. Like, I'm not going to get on when he doesn't do that, try to re- reverse a pass interference. But as far as uh, ruling on a spot where there's a clear and stated rule in the rule book that it's the, the ball should be spotted where the quarterback starts his slide, and he starts his slide literally a whole yard behind the first down marker. And we're talking about the Bears were on their own 10. So that's a guaranteed punt if they respot that and he challenges that because he's going to win that challenge. I know people think, oh, these don't get overturned. No, that one was getting overturned. There was clear and visual evidence. Obviously, uh, obviously. And, and another thing, though. He didn't even think to challenge it. So, you know, it's just another thing. Who's up in the booth? Like, who is – there's? The, yeah. he has to have eyes up there to tell him these things. And now if he, maybe he was – told these things and he just ignored them which seems a little ridiculous to me but there has to be somebody to tell him this i mean this guy Shermer has so much on his plate man it's absolutely ridiculous Uh, he's gonna be ready for thanksgiving i'll tell you that much because he's gonna be freaking loading that shit up with stuffing chicken mashed potatoes gravy everything because he's used to having so much on his plate yeah i mean but i want to circle back to the play 644 quarter one second and seven why is Ogletree passing off this route when both defensive backs are trailing, the wide receiver is running deep, and there's no safety? The safety has clearly no time to get to this over route. And it just seems like these over routes are just killing the Giants game after game. You see these second-level players like Ogletree just stuck, and you see him even move his hand like passing it off, and there's no one to pass it off to. So what is going on there, and why does that turn into a big game there on second and long? In the second and long, it looked like the Giants were in man to the field. On the wide receiver with Bethay on that number three and Peppers on the boundary tight end with the linebackers right. and the weak side corner. Janoris Jenkins playing zone underneath. And it looked like it was just a clear out, which worked to perfection. And Bethay was too worried about that horizontal cross coming from the weak side or from the tight end side. And so he kind of had a, his. This is a Bethay issue then, Nick? I'm wrong on this? Uh, no, I do believe I think it was Ogletree should have compensated for that number three receiver and kind of shade knowing that it was man coverage on that side. And I think he should have compensated for that that side of the field. But he just didn't end up because, doing it because it was, the was what, like 15 yards or maybe like 12 yards yeah. off the line of scrimmage there. Right. And, so, and this is what Giants fans will ask us, Nick, and we'll think about when they see this on TV. They'll look at it and. Pretty bluntly and pretty plainly, they'll see a linebacker, Ogletree, standing in the middle of the field with no one near him, not a receiver in sight, and wondering why not carry that over. It's um, spatial awareness, dude. It's yeah. spatial awareness. He so knows. It's a player issue. Yeah, it's a spatial awareness thing. He knows the play call. Right. He knows the assignments of his counterparts, and he just doesn't seem to have the greatest understanding of route combinations. Especially for in this matchup. I mean, I know he had that interception when it was basically gifted to him because the routes were a little bit too close together. But if you see the clear out and you see both your the corner and the slot go up, don't you think you want to widen out? Like there's nobody else coming into right. your zone because that are all vertical right now. So widen out and help out Bethay if you know Bethay has a hard assignment in that number three receiver. But he didn't. And pass coverage has been an issue for Alec Ogletree's entire career, both one-on-one in coverage and then obviously in space as well. He's a player who we are pretty sure the Giants will move on from this offseason. A lot of his cap hit they'll get back will have a minimal dead cap hit. So you'll be looking at, you know, a return 
of a lot of money, probably around eight to 10 million. I got to take a look at the numbers again uh, to their 2020 cap. And obviously, you know, Ryan Connolly will get the first crack at kind of replacing him there. But I want to fast forward here, Nick, to the end of the first quarter. The Giants get another chance here. Um, There's 59 seconds remaining in the first quarter. For those of you following along, they have a first and 10. They have two tight ends on the line of scrimmage. Jones is under center. And 39 is in the game, the fullback. Now, here's my problem with when 39 is in the game, Elijah Penny. A, he's not the greatest blocker, but that's not the biggest issue. The biggest issue is you tip your plays because you rare, you can't use a fullback like this. You can't have just a fullback coming in for a handful of plays every game expecting to get catch the defense by surprise. I mean, this is an obvious run, and it's what it was, and it had no chance. Gallman was in the game. It doesn't matter. Gallman probably would have got more than Barkley would have got on this play because he just lowers his head and thinks we can get the result. It was a one-yard gain. They're back in second and long. You've now had Penny on the game in the first quarter for two plays, and they were two running plays, and they combined for negative four yards. It's crazy to me, Nick. Am I going crazy, or is just what? No, it's, why is this happening? It's predictable, man. The offense is predictable. It's so vanilla. Every Giant fan listening to this has heard us talk about this for weeks now, and it hasn't changed. They're coming out of a bye, and what do they do? They add a few wrinkles. And it's like, oh, okay, they start out with a play-action rollout. Nice. And then they had the one play where it was the pitch backward to Shepard that was a fake. That was a neat little play, but it's still the same identity. It's still the same play. Like on that specific play, it looked like they tried to run power, which is cool because they haven't run a lot of power concepts. And they did incorporate power gap scheme into this specific game plan, which is awesome. Coming out of a bye week, they did adjust that. Granted, it wasn't handled perfectly from an execution standpoint but on this play that you're just referring to 59 second left in the first quarter tried running the power with Zeitler kicking out Aaron Lynch outside and Penny lead blocking through that play side b gap but Nichols and Goldman stunt so Hernandez is down block because remember this is a power gap scheme there's going to be a defined hole it's not his own scheme so Hernandez's down block kind of handled itself but that down block ended up picking Jalapio and then the stunt from it, it picked Jalapio from handling Goldman. So Solder had to handle Goldman, and then he could not get to his assignment, which was Roquan Smith. And Nick Kwiatkowski then came in as the unblocked defender to fill the hole along with Roquan Smith because Solder was late to that because he had to handle Goldman because of the stunt. Basically because Jalapio got picked because of the stunt right. because of Hernandez's down block. And that might have been sounded convoluted, but basically it just came down to just a little – little, I don't want to say adjustment, but a little thing, just a little stunt. And stunts don't always work against the run. That's actually something that it's a negative. And this was a first and 10. But they stunted, and it ended up knocking Jalapio off. And then there was two unblocked defenders, and that slowed Solder down from getting from his to his assignment. And it was just a mess. Luckily, the Giants ended up picking one yard up on this play. Yeah, it was lucky to get that yard. A couple plays later, 15 minutes remaining in the first play of the second quarter, Giants are once again in a third and long. Third and seven this time. It's just constant throughout this game. They're in these third and longs because, again, they're not doing what they need to do on first down to get ahead of the sticks. And what do you need to do on first down in the NFL to get ahead of the sticks? I'm sorry. This is especially true if you have a team like the Giants who can't execute their run blocking. Throw the ball. There are so many combinations of pass, quick hitters, things that get designed in space, quick stops for four yards. I mean, get yourself out of these third and longs. They can't do it. And I want to ask you about this play, Nick, because to me, it looked like Jones tries to shuffle his feet in the pocket where he's able to kind of where he would be able to kind of hit his what the read he's looking to hit. But he ends up throwing inaccurately behind Tate 
as Max kind of bearing down here, pushing Remmers into him and into the pocket. Do you chart this one when you, you know, when you were taught, you know, how to scout football or when you kind of dive into it now based on everything that you've learned throughout your time? Do you chart this on the tackle, on the offensive line, or is this a quarterback issue when looking at it on all 22? Because this one kind of stood out to me as an either or. Well, I don't want to just single out Remmers when it comes to the offensive line because, I mean, Mac had a really wide alignment on Remmers on this play, and I thought Remmers held up somewhat valiantly. He got pushed back, but Jones tried shifting to his left, and he couldn't because there was a stunt to the left side, and Solder got beat by, I want to say it was Robertson Harris. It was Robertson Harris and a Floyd stunt, yeah, and Robertson Harris came around and kind of just also hit into Jones as he was kind of shifting left away from Max. Khalil Max is the guy that you want to shift away from. So I would say it's kind of on everybody that's involved, but that offensive line on the left side needs to hold up that stunt. And you got one-on-one Remmers versus Mac with a wide nine alignment with Mac with that gigantic angle. You're going to get pushed back a little bit. And the fact that he didn't get beat worse, I was like, okay, Mike Remmers, he held up pretty valiantly on that play. And I want to say, man, Remmers had a few really good reps in this game that somewhat surprised me. One in particular was the second and 15 with uh, 13.48 left in the first quarter where Barkley picked up five yards, an actual five-yard gain on a run. Wow, go figure that one out, Giants fans. But Remmers on that play assisted in a block with Nichols and then picked up Roquan Smith in space while quickly flipping his hips and his momentum inside to pick up Nick Kwiatkowski as Hernandez transitioned to kick out Smith. It was actually very smooth, and the net result was positive, which has been few and far between this season. Yeah, I mean, you're right. And to be honest, like as far as the run blocking goes, they didn't focus in as much on Remmer. So it's really good to hear about him executing some blocks there. And they did have some good gains in the run game, especially once they started to spread it out and get out of their stupid tight personnel formations. And I'm sorry, heavy personnel packages and tight formations. That's never worked. And when they start to finally go tempo and spread things out, they got the run going. But as far as the pass direction goes, that was really the only play I even marked a little bit for Remmers. And I guess you're right. I mean, he's sliding to his left to maybe get away from that right pressure, but also maybe to recreate a pocket that's not there because of Nate Solder. And we'll get to Solder, who was a disaster in this game, uh, just an absolute disaster. Um, it's getting really hard to defend Solder. And earlier in the year, I did just because it's so the position's so scarce in the NFL. And I really don't want to ever see Eric Smith back in there because he was an even bigger disaster than Solder when he was in for the Giants. Um, but it's getting to the point where they have to do something probably in this offseason when it comes to Solder. And it's tough because – or I'm sorry, when it comes to the left tackle position, and it's tough because in all honesty, that first pick – if they're, unless they're going to trade it down, which we know is probably not going to happen if Dave Gettleman retains his job because he's never traded down in his career as a general manager. It's a sad, disappointing fact uh, of what you'll have to deal with as a fan for as long as he's GM, unless he changes his ways. And he doesn't look like a guy who's going to change in his ways. But if they're not going to get Chase Young and they're not going to – the only way I want them to take an offensive tackle in the first round is if they trade down because there's too many defensive playmakers I like at the top of the board. And even then, I still think this defense needs to come first in this draft. So it's like how do you find your offensive tackle? And that's going to be their biggest issue this offseason because either they're going to hope that Nate Solder was playing hurt this entire year because he really had the offseason surgery that slowed him down in camp and then he had an injury earlier in the year. And, I mean, there's been nicks and knacks here and there that he's played through. They're going to either gonna hope that he comes back healthy – or they're going to have to hope they can get a miracle because it's unlikely that Anthony Costanzo or Brian Bulag, who's really only good on the right side anyway, you can't ask a left tackle, or I'm sorry, right tackle flip over to left tackle, really. It just doesn't work like that. I think actually Andre Dillard said it was like asking 
uh, righty to right with his left hand. Um, so that's just something we'll have to keep an eye on, Nick, because I don't know about you, but I'm souring fast on Solder uh, for the 2020 season. Yeah, I'm not a huge – I mean I, I've been kind of harping on Solder uh, this entire season when it comes to his mistakes. But one thing I wanted to pitch to you and just kind of bring up yeah. about Dave Gettleman, I he hasn't traded back, and he's been very stubborn with that. But I feel every year he's been the Giants general manager, him and whomever the – him and Shermer have been feeding bullshit to John Mara saying, hey, this team can compete this year. We're going to get another championship for Eli Manning. And this year it's really come – to light that this team lacks so much depth that now maybe he will adjust and if Chase Young is not on the board he will trade down and try to acquire more assets to draft more players and I'm hoping that something that will actually happen because the Giants really need it yeah Nick you have a very hopeful uh outlook on this situation mine is is not going to change uh I like the point you bring up you know maybe finally realize they're a different kind of team than they thought they were but I don't think that was the main motivator for their decisions to not trade down these first few years I think the way that Gettleman operates he's a see him get him kind of guy he falls in love with players he fell in love with Barkley he fell in love with Daniel Jones McCaffrey yeah he fell in love with McCaffrey and when he was in Carolina, he fell in love with Will Hernandez. You can tell he then almost traded back in the first round. He fell in love with DeAndre Baker, who he then did trade back into the first round to get. So he is a see him, get him kind of guy. He doesn't. Uh, and to be honest, I'm not totally against trading down if they can get a blue chip game changing defender. Um, I don't want to take Andrew Thomas there or any of the tackles. I'm not a big believer that any of these guys are the next quick fix there at left tackle. I think they're all going to have struggles as rookies, I think, but I think an impact defender, Isaiah Simmons maybe. Uh, I'm hoping they'll be in position now to get Chase Young at this point. Um, but, you know, it's still far down the line. But the point is they, you know, this offensive, this left tackle position it could be, you know, a no, there could be no solution. For them in 2020 and you know what they're not the only team who's faced with that situation and they're not the only team who's faced with a potential no solution situation at deep deep half safety because again these are two of the scarcest positions in the nfl they don't grow on trees they don't develop that early or off uh, even if you use early picks so they're in tough sledding there but i do want to talk one more point about solder because it's actually the next play that i had marked down i don't know if you saw this one nick i tweeted it out 10 26 second quarter later in the second quarter again Chance to drive down here, chance to get some points, chance to get, take momentum. You're still controlling the game at this point, even with all the mistakes they made. And they try a pitch to Saquon Barkley on first and 10, 10 26, second quarter. This is not what you want from left tackle Nate Soldier. Did you see this? <laughs> I did, yes, yes. He completely gets, tries to get in space. There's actually some decent blocking to get Barkley going into that into that direction. Obviously, you can also blame Barkley here um, for, in my opinion, for not driving, for not you know, planting his left foot and then driving forward an issue I have with Barkley overall that we're going to get to soon on this podcast. But really, the main culprit on this play is Nate Solder, who completely whiffs on two defenders uh, rolling to his left. Just looks unbelievably old and unathletic on this. Just so, so old on this play. It's a two-yard gain now after this, and now they're at second and eight in the red zone. But take over from there, Nick. It's it's not a good look for Solder and not to really crap on the Giants offensive line, but earlier in this game, Will Hernandez had a very similar look and he came from a school that ran a lot of power concepts, but it was the same exact look where it was just a whiff. Will, Will Hernandez is out here to kick out and he's the play side tackle, so he's not running from a very far alignment and he's also on 
that hash. So it's a boundary run. And Solder goes to locate Prince of Mukamura, and Prince of Mukamura literally, for you Madden fans, hits back Juke, and Solder just flies. <laughs> and then Barkley is left with Prince of Mukamura and Roquan Smith right in front of him. But again, you brought up an excellent point, Dan. Barkley should have planted his left foot, that outside foot, and exploded inside right around the time when he got the ball on the numbers because Cody Latimer comes off his block, hits Nick Kwiatkowski, and then if he did that, Solder would have located, and all he would have had was, I think, one man to beat at that point. But again, I'm nitpicking just a little bit. <laughs> the fact that Solder just whiffed like that, I mean, you're right. It looked very, very unathletic, and it was kind of indicative of a team that hasn't run a lot of power gap schemes, locating kickouts way out um, towards the sideline like that because it happened with Hernandez. It happened with Solder on this specific play. I want to say the Hernandez play was the first quarter. It was a first and 10 with about nine minutes left around there. But yeah, it wasn't a good look for uh, the left tackle who's much maligned. Yeah, and I don't. I know you don't want to nitpick, but I'm, in a few seconds, I'm going to actually ask you to with regards to the Saquon Barkley situation uh, based okay. on what I saw, and I want to see what you saw. But first, I do think that it, uh, an important point to be made here is that, like you said, while they did add some new run-blocking concepts to their offense during the bye week, on this play and on several others, they just look completely out of sync with their plays. It looks like a team that doesn't have it down. It looks like a team that just isn't confident in the plays they're calling in the run game. That's really how it looks. You watch teams like the 49ers who are super confident in what they're using and what, you know, what they're running there in the run game. And you watch versus the Giants who look out of sync, like they haven't practiced it enough or like they don't have a feel for each other. And, you know, as an offensive line, it's crazy because this offensive line has played a lot of games together now and a lot of games together this season. So really it comes down to, okay, you have the continuity. What's the issue? And it could be two things. It could be one, the development of these offensive linemen under Hal Hunter. And two, it could be the play calls, the play run calls. But when you start to see it mix up this game and there's still no success, you maybe go to three, Nick. And I'm starting to get a little nervous about Barkley, at least as a fit for this system. But overall, as a running back to some extent, I don't want to say I'm that worried because he's obviously still unbelievably explosive. He's obviously doesn't look fully healthy to me. Um, and and there's a lot to like, and he, he's completely misutilized as a receiver. There's a ton of upside there. There's obviously the explosiveness. He had nine plays of 40-plus yards last year. The only other running backs to ever do that in NFL history in a single season were Chris Johnson during, during his offensive player of the season year and Barry Sanders during an MVP year. So he's there. He, is not, he made nine game-changing 40-plus plays last year. He still has that in him. But I have an issue with several plays in this game. I counted four of them that I wrote down, including the one you just mentioned, the solder with where he doesn't seem to understand that if he can plant his opposite foot, depending on where it is, either his right or his left foot, and drive forward off of that, you see Dalvin Cook do a lot where he, where he notices that little crease. And take advantage of that crease, he has the breakaway speed and the power to get through those creases, especially when he's going downhill. But it just seems like a lot of the time he's really hesitant to do so or he find, tries to find another way, either trying the double spin move on that one play where I thought he could have planted his left foot and drove him back in or, you know, trying to just bounce outside with his with his opposite, with his inside foot. Um, what do you make of this? Is this a long term problem or what do you think? I do think that the offensive line has not helped him out. I think in a lot of these games, especially the Jet game, he really just had absolutely nowhere to go. But I do see what you're, you're coming from. Barkley coming out of college, his biggest knock was his vision. And sometimes he goes east to west when he should go north to south. And the fact that sometimes he doesn't play like a 230-pound back. He plays more of that 
205-pound back role, which just doesn't necessarily – it kind of takes away from him because you look at him. You look at his measurables. You look at the things that he can do and his incredible athletic ability, and sometimes you just want him to lower his shoulder and just truck somebody, kind of like he did with that one lion in the Lions game to the one defender. Right. You don't see that super often. I do think it's concerning, especially because Pat Shermer is so married to the inside zone scheme and Barkley doesn't seem to always hit the correct hole at the precise time and doesn't necessarily have that kind of discipline, I guess you could say, to find the hole, trust his eyes, and then explode through. That patience like that, sometimes he's overly patient. I think that's another thing that kind of works against him. But you want to see him become more decisive with hitting a hole instead of kind of dancing around and trying to go east and west. And I feel like a lot of these teams are kind of aware of the fact that he does go east to west, and they'll set those edges incredibly hard, and he'll see a little crease, and he'll be like, no, I can bounce it outside. But those edges are set so hard that then he gets stuck, and he did this tons of times in his rookie season. He'll try to turn around, flip around, face his back towards the defense, try to get around, and then just lose like three or four yards. And that's a knock on him, but he's still a young running back. I, he's not 100% healthy. I do think that's a cop-out uh, to an extent in in the regards of people are just like, yeah, he's hurt. So that's why the running game isn't working. No, there is a lot of issues on why this running game is not working. It's not just Saquon Barkley's health. Obviously, it doesn't help. But I feel that he needs to kind of progress with this, with this vision, with this decisiveness. And I think he's more well-fitted for a different kind of system that has more variety and not just the inside zone thing that Pat Shermer has been running exclusively pretty much up until this week. Yeah, and I think it's important to note that I think miss running back is the most misunderstood position in the NFL by um, a, the, not only the average fan, but even the fans that like to dive deeper into into how the NFL works and how this game of football works. And I think uh, Matt Waldman is a guy who does a really great job of explaining this. And Matt Waldman is kind of one of the first guys who got me into the game film analysis side of football and why I got so interested, him and Greg Cassell. But one thing that he likes to talk about um, is there's a lot more to the position than size, speed, catching ability, route running. There's nuances to actually running the football. And if you watch Dalvin Cook, you can just notice this. I mean, Dalvin Cook was a guy who tested out terribly from an athletic standpoint at the combine. Not only did he not have a good 40 time, he tested really poorly vertical jump and all those explosive drills. So people were like, oh my God, he is a really bad athlete. He is not going to be a running back in the NFL. He fell all the way into the second round of the draft because of this, even though he looked like the best running back in college football. But for him, he has all those two, those little nuances to his game, the way he jukes and uh, I'm sorry, not jukes is not the right word, but the way he weaves in and out of holes and the way he sets up his blocks and knows exactly when to plant and cut inside and hit a crease. That's the type of thing that goes unnoticed when you just look at size speed and when you just see those breakaway plays and those crazy highlight plays that really tend to, you know, stand out for running backs. And I think that Barkley doesn't have doesn't have that exactly fit for this scheme. Um, and I think, like you said, Nick, there's a chance he could improve on that, but I think some of it is natural. And I think that, you know, a lot of it would go away with good blocking, but at the same time, I think there is, you know, a good case to be made that Dalvin Cook is a better running back than Saquon Barkley. And I, I, too, I, you know, people call me crazy for a statement like that, but you know, that's how I feel right now. And that doesn't mean I think that will be the case all the time, obviously, but it just means that 
Barkley has some things to work on. He's not perfect. There is no perfect player on this Giants roster, believe it or not. The two-win Giants who squeaked out five wins last year or whatever it was and three of the year before do not have any perfect players on this roster. But I do want to ask you about uh, one more player. Actually, this one is kind of less of a question, Nick, if you'll just bear with me and let me put in our weekly First and eight, Giants are in the red zone. It happens every week. 9-10 left in the second quarter. Giants get into the red zone. They're trying to get some points on the board. First and eight at Chicago 8. What do you know? It's the same play call as always when they get in the red zone. they got to get one in every week. we got a tight formation here. Heavy personnel. You guessed it. They motion the wide receiver back in, and Saquon Barkley runs up the middle for one yard. Now you're in second and goal. The field's shorter, and you have one fewer play to get into the end zone. Uh, Nick, This is obviously an issue for me, but it draws on a larger point. I feel like in this game, we saw it for sure, and we've seen it in the past. When the Giants run from the shotgun with a more spread-out attack uh, in spread 11 personnel, they are a better football team than when they run from under center or when they, uh, even more so when they motion those receivers back tight to the line of scrimmage. What do you make of this? Was this kind of just end of the game? They had some more holes. The defense was playing them differently. Or do you believe they actually could find some more success following trends of some of the smarter coaches in the NFL and running from more spread, you know, from more spread out situations. Well, you know, if you think about it, when you spread people out and that means there's more distance between them, when you run the football, that means that distance has to be shortened by them running. So in theory, that means you have more time until you get hit if the first level of blocks are executed correctly. So yes, I do believe spreading it out and going maybe a little bit more up tempo can keep defenses on their toes. And also when you catch defenses in certain personnel packages and do not substitute as another way to also do that. And I don't feel like the Giants do that too often. They don't go up tempo. They don't put the defense on their toes in those kinds of situations. And that's something that kind of pisses me off and I really want to see this team do it. And they only do it when they really, really have to. And you can do that in other situations and have success because what we just went over these, you know, you're on the 10 yard line. Let's just tight. Motion the wide receiver in, hand the ball off, one-yard gain, negative gain, whatever it is. That happens so often. It's so predictable, and everybody knows it's coming. No one can execute their blocks because the defense knows it's coming. It's so freaking just Pat Shermer. <laughs> it's just so Pat Shermer, man. And, yeah, no, I I um I would like to see the Giants do different kinds of tempo, different kinds of cadences to kind of put themselves, take the burden off themselves, this offense. But you just don't see it with this coaching staff. Yeah, it's it's really frustrating. Um, let's dive into another play that kind of stood out to me. Now we're at 5.54 left in the second quarter. Big down for the Giants because obviously after this, they botch a field goal attempt. Third and five. To me, it looks like this play is completely ruined by Nate Solder getting pushed back into Daniel Jones. What do you make of this? Is this not Solder's fault or is this just another instance of Solder derailing a drive? Yeah, with this play, uh, I mean, Solder, Solder had his struggles a lot. And this one, he just gets long-armed right back into Daniel Jones. And Khalil Mack, I mean, he's going to be a beast. He's going to win these one-on-one matchups, again, especially against somebody like Nate Solder. But again, this was another slightly wide alignment. And he just goes right up, converts speed to power, attacks the... I want to say he hit the inside shoulder or shoulder, but still established the half-man relationship and drove him right back in Daniel Jones. Daniel Jones really didn't have a chance to get this ball off by the time Slayton came out of his break in his route. So, yeah, I mean, you can blame Solder for this incomplete pass to Slayton if there was somebody to blame. Could have also maybe kept Barkley in to, right, right. you know, maybe block 
Khalil Mack and assist your struggling left tackle, something that also didn't happen. It's scary. It's a scary proposition going in a five-man protection against Khalil Mack and Leonard Floyd and this Chicago Bears defense. And the Giants did it a couple different times, and they got burned. It might not even show up on the stat sheet. just shows up as an incompletion. But Daniel Jones not being able to step into that throw and getting hit on the shoulder as he throws really affects his ability to drive a pass to a receiver on the sidelines. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. If he doesn't have that, if he can't throw from that, you know, set base, he's not Patrick Mahomes. He doesn't have that kind of arm talent. He needs decent protection. And I'm not asking for much, just decent protection here. That's it. That's all. That's um, all. I do want to give a nod, Nick, and I don't know if you caught this, 433 in the second quarter. Giants are on the defensive side of the ball. They forced a third and seven, and defense played a pretty good game. Obviously, a lot of that was aided by Trubisky being terrible, but they have a nice little two-man game here with Dexter Lawrence and Leonard Williams. And if you saw this little, little bit of a – I don't know if that's considered a stunt or what do you consider that the, the uh, what they did to generate pressure on this play? Yeah, it's it's just a stunt. It's a you have a one technique in Leonard Williams and you have the three technique in Dexter Lawrence and Dexter Lawrence is just a three one stunt where Dexter Lawrence is going to pick the center and toss him off while taking the guard with him, which allows Leonard Williams to just loop right around Dexter Lawrence and basically be unblocked. It was a, actually a decent play by number sixty nine to uh, the guard, I don't, I don't know his name, to transition to get off Leonard Williams, but the center went flying because of the strength of Dexter Lawrence and the fact that he was engaged with Leonard Williams. So center goes flying, and that allows Dexter Lawrence just to go right after Trubisky and force the incompletion on the play. Almost interception on this play, too. Yeah. That was the one that uh, Julian Love almost picked off. But yeah, you touched on this before, man. <laughs> Only the Giants can make Mitch Trubisky. And you know what? No, I'm not even going to say that because the Giants didn't even make Mitch Trubisky look competent in this game. Like, yeah. <sighs> Geez, that's a uh, that's got to be one of the toughest pills to swallow for the Chicago Bears. Yeah, I mean that's you know you asked me somebody asked me before the game who which franchise position would I rather be in? That's a really tough question because I'm super down on Dave Gettleman right now, more down than I've ever been, and obviously Pat Shermer's disaster, but you assume he'll be gone. But and the Bears have more pieces in place, and but I don't really trust their GM either, Ryan Pace, um, and for mainly because he traded up for Mitchell Trubisky. I know I mentioned this last year on the podcast, or maybe I never did, but I'm fine mentioning it now. Um, eh, you know what? I'm not going to mention this because it was told to me off the record. But just know that not everyone in that Bears organization wanted Mitchell Trubisky that year. And someone very, in a very prominent role wanted a different quarterback and was not very happy when Pace took over and traded up for Trubisky. But I'm pretty I'm pretty sure I said this to you, Dan, uh, when we were having a conversation. And I kind of believe this. I think Mitchell Trubisky might go down as the biggest draft bust maybe ever when you look at the fact that he was drafted over Pat Mahomes and Deshaun Watson and in 20 years those two guys could be in Canton I know it's a little premature to say that but there's a possibility that that could happen and then everyone's gonna be like wait those guys weren't the first quarterbacks drafted who was it and then no one's gonna know who the hell Mitch Trubisky was except for us you know yeah I mean based on that context I don't think it's as crazy of a take as I originally thought when it's just like oh my god remember Ryan Leaf Achilles Smith yada yada etc etc but you know those guys also didn't have Patrick Mahomes and Sean Watson in their draft classes so and the fact they traded up too they traded assets up to secure them oh that's a rough one man anyways (laughs) uh for sure um but that brings me to another point with Dave Gettleman the more I started to come around to reevaluating this Leonard Williams trade, the the more down I am on it, Nick, and I'm hoping you could talk me out of this hole because, you know, Williams had a, probably had a pretty good game here. He had a pretty good game against the Jets, but that's, again, one of the worst offensive lines in the NFL New York Jets had, and they were banged up, and this offensive line wasn't that much better with the Bears. It's been, it's been down this year. 
Um, and even in those games, he's not really at a position that I believe really impacts the game. Like in this game, the Giants run defense was dominant again. You guys should know that. Like the Giants have shored up this run defense after this trade and after drafting Dexter Lawrence and Dalvin Tomlinson and BJ Hill who plays a rotational role. Like these, this front is stopping the run because their linebackers stink against the run and they're still stopping the run. And this game, and we'll get to it later, but the Giants at third, when they were down 13-7, almost forced another field goal from first and goal to two after the Jones fumble, just based on their run defense and those interior guys. And that's all gravy. That's all great. But I just don't know what having a dominant run defense does for you in today's NFL. I don't know how much of a role it plays towards winning games. And that is the bet that Dave Gettleman has made. When he was hired, he said, I still believe in three main concepts. You got to stop the run. I can't do a Gettleman accent. Uh, <laughs> you tried to do a Boston accent right there. I tried to do a Boston accent for a second, and then I caught myself and realized just how terrible it was. Hopefully the listeners will, will get a laugh out of that, I guess. But, I mean, I can't do the Boston accent. I almost gave it a second shot there. No, it's not worth it. But he basically said there's three main concepts here. You got to stop the run. You got to rush the passer. And you got to run the football. But do you really have to run the football? A, first of all, on that side of the ball. You do sort of, but – do it out of shotgun spread, like we said. But B, more importantly, do you really have to stop the run? Because I don't know if that's one of the three major concepts in the NFL anymore. And a lot of the analytics and a lot of the the good stuff that you read from this game from smart people and a lot of what you see from the good teams is putting less importance on stopping the run. That's first my first problem with the Leonard Williams trade. My second problem with the, with the Leonard Williams trade is it's another asset they're giving up, a major asset on the defensive line. This could be a really high third-round pick. We don't know if it's the if the supplemental or if the real one. It's probably the real one. They also used the first-rounder on Lawrence. They had Dalvin Tomlinson already. They inherited. They had Damon Harrison. They got rid of him for nothing and, and took a cap, dead cap hit. And they used a third-round pick on B.J. Hill. Now, you look at a team like the Patriots, who are doing things like shuffling in Danny Shelton, who's now playing a huge role. And defensive linemen are, are not, you know, defensive linemen among all positions, I believe, is the deepest in the NFL, the interior defensive line. I really do believe that. If you look back at some of the Giants teams, they got a lot of production from guys they got off the off the waiver wire at times. Fred Robbins is a name that comes to mind. Uh, there's plenty of others. And that's what the Patriots have really done with that interior of their defense line. They have some guys that they draft in there, but usually mid-round guys too. And they get production no matter what because there's so much depth there. So what he did is he poured a lot of assets, Nick, and this is what bothers me, into one position and into a position that I don't believe has enough of an impact on the NFL, or at least not as much of an impact as he has. Now, my third point before I pass it over to you, Nick, and let you play the other side of this, Devil's Advocate, is that you're a one and eight team or a one and seven team at the time. Why the hell are you trading for a player in season when you're a one and seventeen, giving up a super high third round pick? Jesus, just wait until the offseason, sign him. You know the Jets are moving on. You know he's having a bad year, so it's only going to tank his value. Instead, you give him all the leverage and you bring him in because I believe, like I said on the original podcast from the trade, Dave Gettem is a see him get him type of GM. He sees him. They fell in love with him. They wanted to get him. What do you say, Nick? Is there any defense? <laughs> what I will say, okay, first off, I am I was against the third round pick, and I am hoping that it's the compensatory pick because that's going to be like a 30-pick difference. Wait, first <laughs> off, wait, first off, can we get a Boston accent from you? You want me to uh, – I don't know if I can do it on the spot. I'm actually not that bad with accents, but I'm terrible when I get put on the fucking spy. You know what I'm saying? No. <laughs> you put on the fucking spot. Definitely better than mine. Definitely better than mine. Not great. Not bad. Hey, hey. Sometimes we try. No, but uh, the one thing I will say, 
I agree with you when it comes to pouring assets into the interior defensive line. But I do feel like Leonard has had a small contribution in pass rushing. He yeah. has, what, eight hurries? I'm, I'm just pulled up uh, Pro Football Focus. has eight hurries, six hits uh, in the three games that he played with the Giants. Now, that's not really great because none of them have resulted in sacks. I think it was a high upside trade, and I do believe it was a see him, get him kind of thing. And I don't necessarily agree with giving up a third round pick. Actually, I don't agree with giving up a third round pick at all, giving this player the leverage when it comes to him signing the contract. I think he could be a very valuable piece to the Giants going forward at his age, with his skill set, with his length. And I think those are the things that Dave Gettleman kind of fell in love with. And I think you basically articulated well, see him, get him type of guy. He saw Leonard Williams. That's exactly who we wanted. But putting the asset of a third-round pick when you know your team's going to probably suck at the end of the year, and especially if that's not a compensatory pick, and even if it is, I feel like that's just too much, in yeah. my personal opinion, yeah, when this guy's going to be a free agent. I think the reason that he did it was because Dave Gettleman has had his eyes on free agents in the past, and they never wanted to go to the Giants. So he figured, let's bring him in. We'll show him that we care about him, that we love him, blah, blah, blah. Show him that we do things, and he's going to sign with us and be with us long term. And he probably had discussions with his agent behind closed doors to get a number in mind of what Leonard was thinking about and thought it was reasonable. Those are why it happened. Now, I don't necessarily – I do not agree with the third-round pick thing. I think that was too much, but this wouldn't be the only time that Gettleman has made these head-scratching moves or like – okay, let's go back to the Odell Beckham trade for a second, okay? I, I think we got – I think the Giants got a lot of value back for that, right? But what I heard was Dave Gettleman – didn't necessarily investigate what other teams were willing to. Mm, I wouldn't look into. I I heard. I don't think anything we heard regarding that trade can be taken with anything more than a grain of salt. Yeah, I know. I'm just. I'm bringing it up though, uh, just to kind of paint. Just kind of. I know they were. They were in conversation trade talks with the 49ers per a source of mine. I'm not going to go too far into this, yeah, but yeah, yeah. I know they wanted the number two pick that year, and the Niners didn't want to give it up. Um, obviously that would have meant Bosa on the Giants, which would have been, you know, franchise changing if they could have pulled off Beckham for that number two. And I think the Giants were, there was like more to that deal and the Giants were trying to work ways to get it going. But in the end, the Niners had their mindset on Bosa, uh, for, uh, for an obvious reason. I mean, he's complete, he is a franchise altering defensive player, but I know for a fact that based on that, that, you know, Cleveland wasn't the only team that they talked with. All right. Well, that's that's actually good because like what I was going to basically extrapolate upon when it comes to Dave Gettleman is the fact that sometimes maybe he just it kind of goes with what you were saying with the see him get him kind of thing. And maybe he didn't explore all the other options, but that's kind of where I'm at with the Leonard Williams. Now that he's in house, I hope the Giants can re-sign him to a more favorable deal. And if not, he's going to walk and that's going to be an absolutely terrible trade for the New York Giants, giving up a third round pick and then a fifth round if he doesn't sign. Yeah, and then just to be clear, not just because he he had uh, he tried to get the number two from from San Francisco doesn't mean I think he's doing anything that crazy good. I don't I don't I know, I know he's a good negotiator either. I don't think he does a good job of that at all. So I don't think you know. I mean, I think he got a pretty good return for Beckham personally because I'm not a big believer in Beckham. I don't think he's somebody I wanted to be 20 mil against the cap and everything he brings to your football team. It's not something I believe that was going to be there when the Giants got back in track. And I know people said, oh, my God, can you imagine Daniel Jones with Beckham? I don't know. I don't know because well, I think that would have been pretty ugly if Jones had a bad game or if Jones didn't target Beckham enough in a game that they also lost because you saw what Beckham did with Eli Manning. 
during that. And I don't think that's exclusive to Eli Manning, though I know some of you might think that his actions and his behaviors and things like that were exclusive to his situation and a Giants team that had failed this player. Oh, poor pity you. you fa- they failed you. Um, I just don't buy that crap, and I never will. Um, and that's, go ahead. Oh, yeah, but when Barkley was drafted, it was it's pretty safe to say that a lot of people thought Sam Darnold was going to be the number one overall pick that year, right? Yep. He's not. And Baker Mayfield goes, and it was like, what, three minutes later that the Saquon Bar- – like, the Giants had that mind made up from oh, yeah. the get-go. The fact that, like, do you not hold it against Gettleman a little bit, the fact that maybe he didn't ex- – he explored maybe, hey, there might be some things on the horizon, the fact that teams might be willing to trade the farm for Sam Darnold because yeah. no one thought he was going to be around. didn't seem like he did that. Nick, of course I hold that against him. Nick, and for I'm a while, saying, at yeah. least prior to this season, I – held that against him and then weighed that against, well, okay, I'm happy with the 2018 class because going into this year, the 2018 class looked great. I thought Hernandez, who looked awesome last year, was going to take a step forward and get into the top 10 among guards. Instead, he's taking a step backwards. I thought Lorenzo Carter would make a jump. Instead, he's done some nice things but hasn't fully made the jump. B.J. Hill, great season last year, five and a half sacks. Now they've made moves to make him expendable. Um, and then obviously Saquon Barkley as well has clearly regressed now. Some of that may be injury related. You don't want to make an excuse for that. I don't know if I do. But now that that 2018 class is regressing fast and they got nothing out of their fourth rounder, obviously Loletta, McIntosh is again ex- completely expendable because they've used so many other assets on these interior defensive linemen. It's, it's ridiculous, but they have. Still getting snaps too. And he's still getting some snaps because he's got some talent. Uh, it's not like he's doing a bad job evaluating these interior guys, but like you just don't need all these interior defensive linemen. I don't know what he thinks this is. But again, with that class regressing, I've started to sour big time on Gettleman because that was his saving grace for me. Hopefully they uh, have a third year, you know, revelation and they really hit their strides, especially for guys like Lorenzo Carter, who have really intriguing traits, just haven't sure. put it all together. You also got to point to the coaches. Why haven't they put it all together? Right. Why do they have the traits and not put it together? Yep. So it's it's definitely everything. And on the flip side, I mean, I'm sorry. And let's dive back into the game here then, Nick, because we did take off on a little tangent there, which I'm sure some people are going to enjoy because, again, this whole entire scope of this franchise needs to be discussed at all times because they have turned into a very poor franchise. And like I, t- t- like I tweeted out today, they were in a similar spot to the Baltimore Ravens just not too long ago with a quarterback who was aging and making too much, taking up too much cap space they needed to move on from. The Ravens have gone from that position to being the best team in the NFL. The Giants have gone from that position to being the worst team in the NFL. And there's a lot in between that has happened to be able to – now, the, Ra- the Ravens were in a better spot at that point because they had built such a nice offensive line and they have more pieces on the defensive side of the ball. But at the same time, they did some things. They thought outside the box to get Lamar Jackson and it's paying off now. Um, and obviously Mark Andrews was a nice pick for them at tight end. They knew he'd be an excellent fit for Jackson's skill set up the seam. And that's exactly what he is. But going back to the Giants here, going back to the game, I did want to talk about Corey Ballantyne who, you know, the Giants moved in thinking they would get a nice spark out of that Nichols cornerback position because of Grant Haley's struggles. And I thought he had a really, really, unfortunately poor game against the Bears. Do you agree with that? I noticed three straight plays he was targeted for three straight big plays. I would say the way he played, he should be on the hot seat for starting snaps down the stretch. Do you disagree with me, Nick? Nah, I mean, it's really hard to disagree with you when it comes to that, Dan. I mean, since the, it was about around the two-minute drill, and this just shows uh, adjustments by the Bears. I mean, the Bears probably should have done this from the beginning of the game, knowing that the slot has been an issue all season, albeit it was Grant Haley before. But about around the two-minute drill, 
I want to say they started their drive with about 156 left. Trubisky goes in a two-minute drill, and literally every single pass play was targeted at Corey Ballantyne, whether it was Anthony Miller, whether it was Allen Robinson in the right. slot. It doesn't matter, and Ballantyne was so undisciplined and just any little subtle movement, any double move that that slot receiver would do had Ballantyne fully overcommit. You could tell he was just not confident in himself, in his play whatsoever, and he was just getting burnt and abused the entire time from that two-minute drill. And it didn't really seem like the Giants were uh, adjusting to assist him. There were a couple different plays from the two-minute warning on and into the second quarter where Ballantyne was left all alone on Allen Robinson with no safety help over top. And then you look at the other side of the field and you see safety help uh, like with Jackrabbit. And it's like, why? Why can't you adjust? You know Ballantyne has already given up, what, six receptions, five receptions at that time. And you know his confidence is just down in the dirt. No hip discipline. Absolutely no just – I don't want to say urgency in his play because it wasn't like he was loafing like Baker was a couple weeks ago. It wasn't in that case, but it was just he was just so out of phase and so behind every single cut that you could tell his confidence was in the dirt and he just could not play out there on that field whatsoever. Yeah, point because well, first of all, I'm not totally done with Valentine. I like no, him. neither am I. Yeah, still I like his outlook. I like what I saw. Uh, coming into the NFL, but I think this is kind of just this is the jump from D two to D, you know, or to to the NFL. But on the flip side, you mentioned something how he's you know constantly getting out of phase. That's not something we've seen all season from Baker, and that's probably why we remain fairly high on Baker on turning this thing around with a new coaching staff and more talent around him uh, on the defense side of the ball because he just did an excellent job, I thought, in this game, and I think you noticed it too, of staying in phase, and that's kind of been his mo this season. That hasn't really been his issue. It's kind of been more the mental things. Is that correct? Yeah, it's the mental thing, it's the mental lapses, and it's the fact that he's a bit grabby. Like right. those are Baker's. That, that was a problem for him at Georgia as well. Yeah, and another other problems at Georgia for DeAndre Baker was the fact that there were rumors that he wasn't always fully committed, and that he would take plays off and things along those lines. The kind of character concerns, which is why I was a little when we drafted him, I was like, oh, he when the Giants drafted him, I was like, he's a talented cornerback uh, from the SEC who's physical. I like that. I like that. He could play press man. He could fit in the James Betcher system. That seems like a very logical pick. But I also thought I was like, but all those rumors, I mean, they must have, you know, when there's smoke, there's fire. What's up with that? Doesn't seem like something Dave Gettleman always goes down that road. But he did here. And it's kind of reared his head in this season when it comes to Baker and loafing and things along those lines. But I still see traits with him. I still see him uh, much more disciplined than Ballantyne was in this game. Granted, he was an SEC player. Ballantyne was a D2 player. He's still in phase, and even some of the touchdown catches that he has given up, they've been – he was in really good position. But like Kenny Galladay would make an incredible play. It's the blown coverages. It's the mental side of the game that he's been struggling with, and hopefully in year two, which is what we're all looking forward to, he'll uh, get that football IQ up. Yeah, and sticking with the Giants defensive backs for a minute, did you notice how kind of some of those lapses in coverages came after Dribble Peppers was out of the game? Do you think that was a coincidence and less so uh, due to his absence, or do you think that – you know, the Giants could take a step back now with him sidelined. I mean, Jabril Peppers is definitely the best player not on the defensive line on that defense, and there's no question whatsoever. And, yeah, I mean, I don't know if you saw it. and I, I think I have it written down somewhere, but it was basically a play where Ogletree is just barking at Julian Love. And clapping his hands because Julian Love was totally out of position. And then Julian, the snap happens and Love just did not know exactly what his assignment was. So I think there were a couple instances where 
the young players back there because there were times where it was Love, Beal, Baker, and then Jack Rabbit back there. And that's just a lot of youth in the secondary, yeah. especially for a system that is not so easy to comprehend. So, yeah, I would say definitely without Peppers, that definitely affected the mental side of that defense. Yeah, and that's going to be an issue because obviously Julian Love's going to have to play a whole lot of more snaps now with Peppers out. This is, again, is already a defense that relies on some of these these more uh, you know, difficult to understand concepts, difficult to execute concepts. And now that could come to the forefront, but overall, aside from that not note and that potential realization, what did you make of Julian Love's first real extended uh, experience uh, playing defense for the Giants? I love how fast he played. He played with a lot of urgency. He got on the field yeah. and he was like, I really got to prove myself getting off blocks and things along those lines, showing some physicality. I mean, he was down in the box sometimes being trusted in man coverage on running backs on those horizontal crosses, seemed to not make too many mistakes in the middle of the field and some pattern matches with the tight end or the number three receiver coming over top. And I felt like it was just a solid game and he didn't really make any glaring mistakes. And obviously he gets the interception. Granted, you know, my grandma, who's not alive, could have made that interception. So <laughs> Mitchell Trubisky just threw it up into the cover one. I don't know exactly why, but that's the Trubisky effect, I guess. But yeah, it was a solid uh, showing. Do you, do you have any opinions on that? Yeah, I mean, I thought that he, like, like you said, he played fast. He seemed to be around the football a lot, which is really good trait, I think, for his safety. Um, and at least he was in this game. And I'm happy he's on the field because you could see that after his return from the interception, he was he was pumped up. I mean, he was playing from in his hometown in Chicago, finally got those snaps. And he's a guy who I really liked. I thought he was their best value pick in the entire draft class. So now we'll see if that comes to fruition. Um, and, you know, now finally get those snaps. But I want to ask you about one thing, because if you guys want to know some player on this team who is sick and tired of losing and playing for a losing team that has lost for a lot of years in a row that he's been there, look no further than Janoris Jenkins. Fast forward to 523 in the third quarter, third and goal. The Giants had just fumbled three plays uh, earlier when Nate Sobler got destroyed by Khalil Mack. People blame Daniel Jones for this. Meanwhile, Jones is setting up to get the ball out to the right quick read. But Mac destroys uh, Solder because Mac is that good and Solder is not that good. Um, and there's a fumble. Anyway, it's first and goal. The Giants run defense shows the hell up. It's first and goal from the three, and the Giants give the Bears one yard and two run plays. Third and goal, the Bears try this, like, design, design just roll run, just a designed off-tackle run for Mitchell Trubisky. This is the only way they know they can score. They know they can't hand it off against this Giants defense. They know they can't rely on Mitch to throw. So, first of all, the Giants are pretty well set up for it, and Mitch runs around that that tackle, and there is Janoris Jenkins. If he just dives forward, he is definitely stopping Mitchell Drabisky if he goes head or whatever, however you're taught to do it. But instead, he goes up, runs from his spot, or doesn't run, kind of jogs or loafs from his spot to the actual goal line, and then stands there like a stiff board and gets pushed backwards uh, by Mitchell Drabisky. One of the saddest efforts I've seen all season by any Giants player— Actually, it was the saddest effort I've seen by any Giants player. Nick, did this play stand out to you? Uh, yes, I definitely saw that. But I would say there was a play in this season where it was a sadder effort than that. And that was also Janoris Jenkins uh, against Blake Jarwin. Oh, yeah, and the yeah. Cowboys. But again, I don't think it's necessarily just the losing season. I, I remember Janoris Jenkins. I feel I remember do, him doing this in situations where the Giants weren't in this like lost season. I feel like he does this sometimes in those situations where – People have a lot of momentum running at him. He'll make some business decisions, and it's this is at least like the fifth time it's been glaring on tape. So, I mean, 
teams that and he's gonna be a free agent soon teams are gonna know that but his cover yeah. skills still are gonna bail him out i think he actually has another year for the giants but he's almost, yeah he's gonna be a free agent though definitely gonna be a free yeah. agent um especially when plays like this happen i just don't understand though if if it's fully a personnel issue or you know individual issue or if it's partially on the coaching because these coaches these players they watch that tape and when the coaches say that's acceptable to have a player playing with that kind of effort you set a mark and you set a tone for the rest of the team and because you know they're all watching that play on film everyone has seen that play and there's not much to say about that play and you need to make you know as a coach you need to set the set that set the tone there and set a standard and clearly the giants don't have that standard on the defensive side of the ball right now. And that's really disappointing. But one other thing I wanted to talk about, Nick, um, is how the Giants respond after big plays. So Julian Love comes up with the interception. Now we've got 14.45 in the fourth quarter. Time is running out. The Giants are now down 19-7 after this, or I believe, yeah, 19-7 at this point. Um, First and 10 after the interception at the 50-yard line, 14.54. The Giants run a pitch right to Saquon Barkley for negative five yards, their second negative five-yard run on the game. The play never has a shot versus this look to me. I've never seen anything look stupider than running a pitch against this look from the Bears, and it puts them in second and long and kills this entire drive. So my question is, this is a key drive in the game. Why are they coming off of big plays and running the ball, first of all? But if you're going to run the ball, why not Why? Why not audible out of this or call a timeout or something? Have a play, have an, have a pass play to audible into. Do, do you think this is bad execution, or do you think that this is kind of an impossible task against what the Bears are showing? Yeah, it's pretty impossible task. I mean, you have number ninety-five. You got Khalil Mack in that area as well. You have, I think, two defensive backs and Nick Kwiatkowski right there. And it's that halfback power they're trying to do. But I wanted to ask you this before we even dive into this play, and it's kind of a uh, more broad issue: is Daniel Jones? How much does he have control at the line of scrimmage to change any of these plays? It doesn't seem like he has any. Yeah, I mean, our, our listeners have asked this, and I, I wonder if he did. I've seen him make some motions to the receivers. Um, but again, like like, I, like I've said, and I'll say again, I don't cover the Giants in the locker room during practices during the week, and neither does Nick. So this is something that would be best, best asked for Pat Shermer. It's hard for us to tell um, from our vantage point of just watching the All-22. Um, and following along. And in addition to that, I doubt Shermer would give a straight answer because he's bad no. Shermer. Yeah. So he'd just get super offended at the question. So again, we don't know. We don't know. But Nick, I mean, was, but it was it was a terrible sequence though. And running at that juncture, just it. I think it was Simonson on that play. He blocks Buster Screen, and then he has to keep his momentum going. And Screen just drives forward. He lets Screen just get right upfield and just hit Barkley in the backfield. And it's just it's a sudden change. You get an interception. I know it was a fourth down where he threw the interception, but still it, it's or or third down, whatever. It's still a um interception. It's a sudden change. You have some momentum. Go for a bang play right there. Try to catch that defense off guard, something along those lines. No, you go for that pitch to a side where Khalil Mack is and a bunch of numbers out there to that side of the field. It's not going to materialize into anything fruitful, and it never does. And then, what, the next play, I think uh, Daniel Jones almost throws an interception, and it's just one of those things where it's like, oh, it's one of these drives again. It's like, what the hell, man? This team just can never figure it out. Even when the Bears try to give the game to the New York Giants, the New York Giants are just not accepting it, whether it's their kicker kicking it out of bounds, bad punts, interceptions, advantageous fields. It just doesn't matter. The team just could not capitalize. Yep. 
And on the positive note, though, I do want to bring a positive play. 2.55 left in the fourth quarter. Giants trying to string together a second uh, touchdown drive after, obviously, you know, we could talk about that fourth and 16 touchdown of Tate again, but we talked about in the first pod, just incredible job by by Jones, who gets who's left guard. I put it on Twitter, the play. I mean, you could all watch for yourselves, but Hernandez gets destroyed. He has to step up through immediate pressure, not even set, and puts the ball into a great spot for Tate. So awesome play. But at 255 left in the fourth quarter, Nick, I thought we saw another sign of why Darius Slayton could be a really, not only a good player in the NFL and like a solid fifth round pick, a guy who like was with your team, it's maybe a number two for a while. I think he has potential to be more than that. And it's based on his ability to get really clean releases off the line of scrimmage. You watch this play again, and you see that Prince of Mukamara in coverage has his ankles broken. What he does is there, he turns a simple slant on fourth and four into a 17-yard gain. Are you seeing what I'm seeing from Slayton? Are you as excited as I am about him for the future? Uh- Of course, I've been excited about Slayton for a little while now. And on that play, man, I mean, he fired. Okay, so it's like press coverage, essentially. He's right on him, Prince of Moomore, that is. And he fires his feet, which is something that you do as a wide receiver when you're in that tight quarters with a defender. You want to fire your feet to kind of get his hips not being able to commit to any way and have him kind of just back up and give you a little bit of space. It's a way to back him up off the line of scrimmage and not be able to really strike you with that press coverage. So he fires his feet on the line of scrimmage, and then he releases outside. And once he releases outside, he gets Prince of Mugamora to fully commit outside. But it's that when he sticks his inside foot, Darius Slayton that is, into the ground and just effortlessly turns, It's it was so smooth. And it was like, wait, this guy was a fifth-round pick? It was so smooth, and I believe they highlighted it on the telecast as well. It was, wow, what a release off the line of scrimmage. That is a guy who is taking the coach, and that is a guy who is really progressing in his first year to be able to fire your feet, release, and then just go right back inside like that in such a smooth manner and also be able to flip someone like Prince of Mugamora, who's a very solid cornerback in the league, around i mean i'm very excited for the future of darius slayton especially if you can get another receiver somebody else to pair him with along with golden tate sterling Shepard, and i ain't talking about someone like jerry judy but i'm just saying get somebody else to bring him in here i think slayton can learn from the uh just the experience of Shepard and golden tate as well and uh, that play in particular fourth and four high leverage situation i mean that's an excellent just an excellent play by jones and by slayton you can see the rapport between the two no doubt. All right, Nick, let's dive into the questions from the listeners. And we'll start with Curtis Taylor, who asked, what do you all think of potentially having Ron Rivera come in as the new head coach? He's been AP coach of the year two times, been to the playoffs and a conference championship. He's actually been to a Super Bowl as well. Uh, despite the Gettleman connection, personally, I'd much prefer him to Jason Garrett and Mike McCarthy. I personally, I mean, I haven't really thought much about Ron Rivera, but he seems to have disciplined teams and he seems to be a coach that is highly revered. I would not be opposed to it. I don't I know he would have to bring in the right offensive mind. And that's kind of what I'm worried about right now is who is going to be coaching Daniel Jones. If you do bring in a defensive minded coach, quote unquote, uh, Mike McCarthy, I do not want. I do not want Jason Garrett either, although I do feel like Jason Garrett is a better alternative to Pat Shermer. And I kind of wanted to get your take on that, Dan. Yeah, we'll start with Ron Rivera. Um, I think he's a solid coach. Uh, I think, like Nick, you kind of nailed all the points there. Um, I think he's much better than some of their other alternatives. I'm a big believer that 
coaching searches are disastrous. It's really hard to find a good NFL mm-hmm. coach these days. Um, the last time the Giants had this problem two years ago, I was actually happy with the decision to hire Pat Shermer. I thought it would have been disastrous if they hired Jim Schwartz, and I still do. I didn't want Matt Patricia at all. These were the big names that year. That's how bad it is. It's really hard to find an NFL head coach. You need a guy like John Harbaugh, one of those types, or Ron Rivera type. So for that reason, and he's done it, uh, I do like him. Um, but, you know, he's benefited a little bit from North Turner in recent years, and he's had he's had some nice uh, coordinators come out of that defense. Wilkes got a head coaching job um, temporarily, but he did get one. So McDermott. Yeah. McDermott, even better example, is McDermott who came out of there. Um so he's had some good coaches, and that's a credit to him. I don't look at that as a negative. I look at that as he's done a good job to find those coaches and put them on his staff. And I agree. I would rather have him than Mike McCarthy for sure. If the Giants hire Mike McCarthy, there may no longer be a Big Blue Bander podcast, or at least you'll have to be doing it with another co-host um, because you know I may no longer be able to cover this team. Uh, I'll be so disappointed. But I think he's a disaster. And obviously, going to your other point with Jason Garrett – yeah, if it was like a one-year deal, like, like <laughs> I'd rather have Jason Garrett than Pat Shermer. He's Pat Shermer's not as bad as Jason Garrett is, but I mean, I'm sorry, Jason Garrett. Yeah, yeah. Shermer is, but no, it would turn into a five-year deal, and they would have to stick. They would look to stick with him for a long time. So I'm out on Garrett as well, uh, a coach who I think does a bad job of understanding situational football. His decision, you know, you could look at it even just in this last game with the Patriots. His decision to kick a field goal there in the fourth quarter was just off, off, kiltered. He should have, on third down, shortened his fourth down chance, and he should be thinking fourth down that entire time when you're trailing by seven in the fourth. It just, that late, it just doesn't give you enough to get that three points on the board. Yeah, um, but it covered the spread. It yeah. did cover the spread, though, so spread. maybe he has looked past his days as the Cowboys head coach and knows he's already out and is trying to make some money back, uh, even though, you know, his contract's guaranteed. So he'll be fine wherever he gets. He'll get another job. I just don't want him to be with the Giants. Let's put it that way, I guess. Um, Ezra Sackle asks, why can't the Giants receivers get open? Is it play design, talent, or are they broadcasting the plays before the snap? Seems like every catch they make is in traffic and that a lot of the sacks Jones takes are because no one is open and they're covered sacks. I mean, I we we've talked about this a lot on this podcast, Ezra, and Pat Shermer is just not all that innovative when it comes to his play calling. And I mean, you anybody just go and watch the 49ers, go and watch even the Panthers to a certain extent with what they do with McCaffrey. You go and watch a lot of these other teams and how they kind of utilize their play design and utilize pre-snap motion, utilize a lot of different methods, pre-snap and post-snap to get receivers open. The Giants never ever do that so yes you can blame the play design i don't necessarily think it's because there's a dearth of talent on the team because i think Shepard, slayton and tate is a solid solid wide receiver group yeah i mean it's interesting ezra because there was a stat a few weeks ago i think it was like three or four weeks ago now so i haven't checked up on it since um that the giant the giants wide receivers had the least yards of separation nfl next gen stats um on average and that's possibly true but again like Nick said, there are other factors, not just the actual individual player. It's the routes they run um, within this system. So it's something to keep an eye on. And obviously, it's hard for us to judge because we don't watch the all 22 of the other 31 teams. So we can't really see how those receivers are separating. But it's definitely something to keep an eye on if Pat Shermer remains the coach. But I think you'll see a completely different you know, situation if there's a new system in place. Um, young, Mitchell, the sh- young Missile the Chef asks, who would be the ideal replacements as general manager and head coach? Um, and should the Giants be all in on Chase Young, whether that means moving up to get him? 
when it comes to the ideal replacements for general manager and head coach, I don't necessarily have an ideal replacement for either. I, I want some stability for this franchise, and I don't know who wants to come to the New York Giants right now because there are a lot of young, younger general manager types, people, head scouts, director of college, uh, director of college scouting, things along those lines in really successful organizations like the Patriots or like the Ravens that could possibly leave. Kind of like Eric DaCosta was when Ozzie Newsom was there, but he was never leaving. There's a lot of younger people like that in the NFL. Well, I'm not necessarily, I don't have a name for you at the moment. When it comes to head coach, I think of guys like Matt Rule. I haven't watched an extensive amount of Baylor tape, so I don't want to necessarily really give my endorsement of him, but I've heard positive things. He's somebody to look into. And when it comes to Chase Young, if the Giants move up for him, say it's one spot, what are the Giants giving up? And that's kind of what I will preface it with. I do not want to give up any future number ones to get him. I don't feel like it, but it really depends. Like, I do believe this guy is a generational type of defensive player, but I don't really want to give up a quarterback's a quarterback type of trade to get him. Yeah, I think I'll start by answering the question on that side of it, uh, Young Missile and Nick. I kind of agree with Nick here. I think he's a generational player, but I think I'm not going to make any statement on whether they should trade assets up for him until I get into April or at least late March. Um, where I can kind of have a better feel for every prospect in the draft and how the board shakes out and how I want them to attack it. Um, it's too early for me. I mean, we're focused on the Giants here. We don't have time yet for all the college guys. On the flip side, I think Nick hit it spot in the head right now. The guy I got my eye on, the guy I'm most intrigued about, is Matt Rule, the Baylor coach. You look at the job, and he's a coach, by the way, who spent uh, a season with the Giants as their assistant offensive line coach in 2012. He's had a lot of jobs, actually. He's been a defensive line coach, quarterbacks coach, offensive coordinator for Temple for three years and quarterbacks coach. And he took over as head coach uh, as Temple uh, after after joining the Giants for one year in 2013. Did a great job turning that program around and now has done an even better job turning this Baylor program around. And he's the type of guy that I like. He's the, you know, not, not he's the more John Harbaugh type of coach. So and he's done a really good job getting two teams now to believe in him two programs that don't exactly have the most talent coming in and a second program Baylor that was in the dumps one and 11 uh, takes them over and they go seven and six in his first season after a one and 11 season and then come back this year, 10 and one dominating Texas, losing to Oklahoma really in a tough loss in a game they could have won. So he's number one for me right now, just based on the field, um, which again, like I said, is scarce. It reminds me of the offensive tackle position right now in the NFL. Uh, it's tough to find him. So right now he's my one. Uh, Will asks, I don't know how much of this is really in your wheelhouse, but are Algic Rose's problems temporary or a sign of a serious issue? Do you think a long snapper upgrade gets things on the right track? I think cohesiveness amongst all three of the long snapper, the holder, and the kicker is ideal. And it doesn't seem like Zach Diase has it, especially through these last two weeks. It's something the Giants really have to investigate. But I believe the Rosas issue is a mental issue. I think it's in his head right now. Uh, Dan and I talked about this a little bit on the last podcast. Rosas has a leg. He has a big leg. And he's still young. So there's a lot of... I guess you could say traits there for the kicker when it comes to kicking. It's just he needs to get his head right at this moment, and he needs to be more consistent with that. He just needs his confidence to be up when it comes to that. And the funny thing about kicking, I actually wrote a paper in college when I was getting my degree in exercise science about kicking. (laughs) It didn't really have much to do with the mental side of it or kicking field goals, but it was about basically kicking a soccer ball, which is pretty uh, similar to uh, the field goals. Well, one day I will have to read that, Nick. I don't know where it is. 
Well, find it uh, because <laughs> I will definitely not be reading. Oh, what? No, never mind. Uh, <laughs> Jason Dodge. Oh no. Well, I mean, listen, Will. I think I said it all in the last podcast. I trust the leg. These guys are all mental head cases. Hopefully, he gets it back on track. Um, and obviously, like you said, there's pin long snapper issues, which you shouldn't expect to happen on a football team. But the Giants, yeah, they're a football team that's going to have those issues um, for sure. Jason Dodge asked, what are the differences in blocking from this year to last year that has led to Barkley not doing well? I mean, I think Eli Manning's not there right now. You have a different quarterback, and I feel that it's just very predictable. I feel like the Giants and haven't necessarily changed what they've done since last year when it comes to the inside zone and running the football. And I feel like that has been an issue when it comes to Saquon Barkley and his ability to just even find the hole. I think it's also a problem with him. I think it's kind of just an entire team issue. These linemen do not get to the second level, and that is an issue with this team in general. You see a lot of other offensive lines in the NFL, the block, duo block, ace block, whatever it is, climb up to the second level, locate the linebacker, and then it's the running back against the unblocked defender, against that alley defender. And you rarely see that with the New York Giants. And I believe it's coaching. I believe it's Hal Hunter. I believe it comes down to execution as well. I think it's just a massive shitstorm when it comes to everything that has to do with this rushing attack. And the difference from last year is, I mean, Barkley is a bit injured this year, and the holes aren't necessarily there. He hasn't had that ability to just find the crease and just go. You haven't seen that like he did last year. Could be a vision issue. Could be somewhat of the injury. Could be a lot of different factors, a lot of different variables that are leading to this really just shitty rushing attack. Yep. Unfortunately, that's where we're at. Elliot Ruth asks, what's the one thing you think Daniel Jones needs to work on the most other than ball security? One thing. I want to see a more – because we alluded to this a little bit earlier. I want to see Daniel Jones be able to make audibles at the line of scrimmage. So maybe that's a comprehension of the playbook. I'm not sure if that's a Pat Shermer not giving him the full reins because he's young or what it is. But I would like to see him kind of have that full grasp of the playbook in order to really – kind of see oh wow that's a a seven man box i don't really want to say one buckley to run into that so let's adjust and then go from there I, I know it's hard for us to tell dan like you said but it just does not seem like he has that ability he adjusts some things points out blitzers but i don't believe he has the full reign just from what i see could be wrong but i don't believe he has the full reign to fully change plays and audible out of things in every situation and context yeah that's fair for me, what I want to see more of is Jones doing a better job of using his feet to reset the pocket. Uh, I think he's done a decent job escaping from bad pockets and turning them into running plays. There have been mostly positive gains. But I think at times when he's escaped, it's been too late, too little, too late. Um, and then he doesn't have a chance to reset his feet before throwing. And it's more of a throw while, ro- while rolling or running or whatever you want to call it, moving laterally. Um, so just think he needs to do a better job of manipulating the pocket with his feet. Um, I think that's going to come in time. That's not something I expected him to be really good at, uh, as a rookie, especially considering footwork was a major issue for him, at least upon my evaluation at Duke, uh, with a, with a coach who gets a lot of credit cut, but should get a knock a little bit for not really working with his quarterbacks on footwork. He does a good job of the stuff from the, the, the waist up with quarterbacks, but waist down, I don't think he did a great job there. Um, Cutcliffe, and I think it still needs a lot of work in the NFL. So we'll see where that goes. Um, Andrew Owens asked, 
how much value can an interior defensive lineman that is really good but not an Aaron Donald type, so for example, like a Dexter Lawrence, provide versus an above average to good edge rusher like an Olivier Vernon if him and Dex are the same age in contract? I think it all just depends on the team. I mean, football is a team sport. If you have other good edges then and you have absolute shit at the defensive tackle position, you're going to value that defensive tackle a little bit more. But if you want to look at it from this kind of uh, black and white sort of uh, lens, I prefer good edge rushers to really good sure. defensive tackles. Yeah, I think for me, Andrew, I'm on the same page as Nick here. I think really how you break this down also is that it's much easier to find those interior defensive linemen. You look at how the Patriots have done it, trading for guys like Danny Shelton, who was a you know, cast off from the team that drafted him, and finding guys in different spots and different rounds. There's way more defensive tackles in the NFL, interior defensive linemen in the NFL, than there are edge guys that impact the game. So I think you're onto something here, Andrew. I wouldn't use Vernon as an example because he's injured again and has been injured his entire career since coming uh, since the Miami days, basically. But guys like him for sure. Bobby Madon asks what I think uh, people aren't talking about regarding that Leonard trade is that besides the third and fifth DJ gave up, he essentially gave another third with Hill because he doesn't play him anymore. Anyway, my question is, can I sue the Giants for turning me into an alcoholic? You know, you might want to get a good lawyer because, Bobby, you might have a good case there. But my, my, my thing is actually, Hill plays around 20 snaps, something around there, every game. And I actually wanted to bring this up to you, Dan, before we logged off. If you were going to ask me, like you usually do, anybody else catch my eye? P.J. Hill did. P.J. Hill had a pretty solid game here in the snaps that he played. Did you and see that at all? He did. He had a great game in the snaps that he played. He was graded high. You noticed him on film. I noticed him. It's crazy. Yeah. For anybody who wants to see uh, the second quarter, 1425 left around there in the second nice. quarter, 738 left. Two really good B.J. Hill plays. There you go. 1425, 738. That's both quarter two. Yes. All right. Listen, but yet he'll still makes plays. Yeah, he well, definitely he definitely still makes plays. snaps is not great for a third round pick, especially one pick before uh, Fred Warner goes off the board for for the San Francisco 49ers, a second-level player, a linebacker who's playing unreal right now, out of his mind on that defense. Yeah, and you're not wrong. And, Bobby, that's an excellent point as well. And that was a David Gettleman pick. And that was why I thought that maybe Dalvin Tomlinson was going to be the guy out when his contract was up. But it seems like, I mean, Dan and I talked about it, maybe they would still be able to find a way to bring him in with a favorable contract. And again, Tomlinson, every, every week with this guy, he just continues to make plays, make plays, make plays against the run. He is an absolute beast, and he has progressed a lot. you got to tip your cap to Jerry Reese a little bit for that. Yeah, tip the cap to some of the players who are doing it well. Slayton, Tomlinson, a lot of the guys are still playing hard and playing well. On that note, guys, we're going to end this podcast today. That was a final question for today's pod. Have, hopefully, everybody has a healthy and happy Thanksgiving I know I will. I know Nick will. We're both excited for that. Um, And otherwise, we'll talk to you guys Sunday again after the next Giants game. So have a great weekend. The Packers are up next. And enjoy your Thanksgiving.